Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money for your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey everybody, I'm back. So today I thought I'd do an episode on a man who was exonerated, Kevin Strickland. This All this information comes from the National Registry of Exoneration. And a newspaper article from Kansas City Star by Luke Nozika. I really hope I pronounced that right. I'm sorry if I didn't. Okay. So on April 25th, 1978, Cynthia Douglas visited 21-year-old Larry Ingram at his house in Kansas City, Missouri. Douglas's boyfriend, a 21 a sorry, a 20-year-old John Walker was there, along with 22-year-old Sherry Black. Around 8.30 p.m., Ingram let, the, let two men into the house. Very quickly, the two men pulled out guns. Ingram asked one of, them, one of the men what he wanted, and the man said, you know what I want. One of the men opened the door and let the other two other, two other men in. Ingram and the guests were tied up, and the men began searching the house, taking Ingram into the living room. Douglas then heard a shots, and the men returned to the bedroom and shot Walker, Black, and Douglas. Only Douglas survived. She was shot in the arm and leg and pretended to be dead. Douglas untied herself and went to a nearby house. The neighbors called the police. Douglas also called Brandy Harris, her sister's boyfriend, who rushed over. Before she left in an ambulance for the hospital, she told the police that Vincent Bell and Kim Kilm? K-I-L-M. So Kilm, possibly Adkins, were two of the four men involved in the shooting. Douglas knew both of the men personally. She would later testify that she didn't identify anybody else at the time. Several hours later, at 3.20 a.m. on April 26th, Douglas gave a more formal statement to the police. She identified Bell and Adkins from police mugshots and described the other assailants. One carried a shotgun and the other wore a paper bag over his head. In the statement, she also said she didn't know either man. Later that morning, just before 10 a.m., Kansas City Police arrested 18-year-old Kevin Bernard Strickland in connection with the shootings. He had a previous arrest as a juvenile for shooting, but no convictions, convictions, and Strickland was a neighbor of Bell's and friends with him and Adkins. Officers later testified that they heard some versions of Stickland's nickname, Nordy, a plain Bernard from Douglas during the initial stages of the investigation. 
and then put it to stretch, order for Strickland to be brought in for questioning. The officers who interviewed Strickland at the police station would later note that he was uncooperative and combative. In the written report, the officers said that Strickland told them he already knew about the triple homicide. He also said it that he'd been with Bell and Adkins at about 5 p.m. a few hours before the murders. Regarding the police report, Strickland said a friend had called him after the shooting and said the girl that was shot in the leg. Also, he knew who had shot her and was going to tell the police. He declined to name his friend. The police report also said that Strickland received a call at around 8 p.m. on April 26th from Bell and Adkins, asking whether the police were looking for him. Strickland said he told them the police were at his mother's house. Strickland told the police that he might have handed Bell a shotgun a few days before the shooting and had given Bell some shells. Later, Strickland told the officers he wasn't talking anymore. Book me or turn me loose. But if you do, next time you come after me, draw first or I'll kill you, he said. He denied any involvement in the shooting but said if he had been involved, he'd be shooting with everyone else because I love to shoot my gun, I'm a good shot, and I love to kill people. Cynthia Douglas returned to the police station for a second interview at around 3.30 p.m. on April 26th. After leaving the hospital, she discussed the case with Harris and described him the man with the shotgun. Harris told her that the future sounded like Strickland, partially based on Douglas's description, and partially because of Strickland's relationship with Bell and Atkins. In his second interview, Douglas now said Strickland, whom she had known for several years, was the man with the shotgun and had also caused her not to look at him. The police report about this interview explained the discrepancy between discrepancy between Douglas's two interviews this way. It should be noted at this time that Cindy stated that due to her extreme emotional condition, having been shot and having smoked some marijuana and consumed some cognac, she was unable to recall the suspect's name during her previous interviews with detectives earlier this date. She stated that throughout the morning and afternoon, hours on this date, she could go over the events in her mind and clarify certain things. In addition, Douglas said that Strickland had also reached out to her family earlier that day and asked her to keep quiet about what she saw in exchange for some hundred dollars. After the interview, Douglas identified Strickland from a police lineup where he was one of four men. Rather than asking Douglas which each man had the shotgun, the police asked her which was Kevin Strickland. Strickland was charged with one count of capital murder and two counts of second degree murder. Atkins and Bells were later released, arrested in Kansas and Missouri and faced murder charges. Strickland went to trial first on October 1978 in Jackson County Circuit City Court. Their jury deliberated for several days, but hung 11 to 1, with a sole black member voting for acquittal. A mistrial declared. 
The prosecutor told Strickland's attorney that he had been careless in seeing that juror and that his mistake won't happen again. It didn't. This time before an all-white jury, Strickland's second trial took place in April 1979. Without explaining as the law allowed, the prosecutor used his four preemptory strikes to remove the remaining black jurors which had not previously been dismissed for cause. At trial, prosecutors presented a shotgun found not far from the crime scene. A firearms, a firearms expert testified it was the gun used in the murders. A forensic analyst said that the Latin fingerprints taken from the weapon were of poor quality and not usable. Strickland's fingerprints were not found at the crime scene, but the forensic analyst testified that Strickland's fingerprints was found in the rearview mirror of Bell's car. Several police officers testified that Douglas had identified Strickland on the night of the shooting before she recalled him in her second interview. One officer testified that Douglas had mentioned a man named Norty as she was being treated inside the neighbor's house. This statement contradicted this testimony at the first trial, where he said she mentioned Strickland's nickname from the back of an ambulance. Asked on cross-examination about the discrepancy, the officer said he could not recall when and where Douglas first mentioned Strickland. This officer also said that Douglas made a man named in court documents as T.A. being involved in the shooting, but his name was missing from the initial reports, and Douglas would testify that she didn't know T.A., so she would have been able, unable to name him. A second officer testified that Douglas had told him at the crime scene about Bell, Atkins, and Strickland and asked the police dispatcher to put a put out a pickup order for those ten men for these men at ten PM on April twenty fifth. But Strickland's name wasn't in that order, although it was in order about five hours later. The officer who claimed he had written down the information about Naughty in her investigative notebook, but the document was never produced at trial. Douglas identified Strickland as a man with a shotgun. Still, she also said she had made no statement to police before the second interview on April 22nd that identified him as a participant. She said that her discussion with Harris convinced her of Strickland's involvement. Strickland testified he was not involved in the killings. He said he had learned about the events from talking to police officers near the crime scene. But one of his witnesses testified he was standing next to Strickland and he didn't hear this exchange. In addition... Strickland said that the person who called him about Douglas's condition and her ability to identify the shooters with whom Strickland discussed paying Douglas for her silence in the morning after the killing. Strickland also offered several alibi witnesses. His older brother testified that he and Strickland were at their father's house the hour before the murder and that Bill and Atkins weren't there. Strickland's girlfriend also testified that she spoke with him three times by telephone that evening. Atkins' mother also testified on Strickland's behalf. She said her son, Bell, T.A., and another man were at her house at about 7, 7.30 on April 25th. She knew Strickland and he wasn't there, which was consistent with a statement she had given police two days after the murders. 
After an hour of deliberation, the jury convicted Strickland of one count of capital murder and two counts of second-degree murder on April 26, 1979. He was sentenced to life without, without being eligible for parole for at least 50 years and two concurrent 10-year sentences. He answered an Alfred plea to counts of secondary murder on April 30, 1979, and received a 20-year sentence. Under an Alfred plea, defendants don't admit guilt, but acknowledge that the state has sufficient evidence to obtain a conviction. Bell pled guilty to three counts of secondary murder on April 13, 1979, also receiving a sentence of 20 years in prison. During his allocution, Bell testified that the shooting and the events that led up to it. He said that Atkins and the man known as T.A. were mad at Ingram because they believed he had cheated them out of dice and planned to get their money back. Joining the joining three men was a 16-year-old known as P.H. Bell, said, who said Strickland wasn't there. He said, I won't let them know what happened out there in society in April in 1978. April 25th, and let these people know today that one of the suspects that Douglas said it was, it wasn't him. I know for a fact because I was there, and she mistakes that man like the snake mistake that man. Bell said that Strickland's attempt to bribe Cynthia Douglas was a misguided attempt to help a friend, not an admission of guilt. Strickland, he said, was trying to be big, you know, not attempting what was going on. He was telling Marcus Harris to tell Sydney to be quiet and he'd give her a couple of dollars. So Marcus thought he was involved. Soon Strickland appealed, arguing there had been insufficient evidence to support the conviction, which is true. The Missouri Supreme Court affirmed the sentence on December 15, 1980. Strickland then began a series of motions for post-conviction relief that spanned 1982 to 2017. And unfortunately, East was dismissed. Separately, Strickland filed a pro se petition for writ of habeas corpus in U.S. District Court for the Western District of Missouri on July 16, 2013. He claimed the trial attorney had been ineffective because of his failure to challenge Douglas's identification. He also presented two new pieces of evidence. The first was an affidavit from Adkins saying that Strickland wasn't involved in the murder. The second was Douglas's email to the Midwest Innocence Project on February 4, 2009. She said, I'm seeking info on how to help someone wrongly flee accused. This incident happened in 1978. I was the only witness and things were not clear back then, but now I know more and would like to help this person if I can. This email doesn't didn't identify Strickland, and an attorney with the organization wrote back a few days later, asking Douglas to have the defendant contact the group. Its policies didn't allow it to advocate for a defendant unless the defendant made the request. Douglas never wrote back. Without any hold, holding any hearings, the court dismissed Strickland's petition on July 30, 2013. It said the matters had already been addressed in previous claims. Douglas died in 2015. In September and November 2020, the Kansas City Star 
and the Midwest Innocent Project published an investigation into Strickland's claim of innocence. In its reports released May 8, 2021, Prosecutor Jane Peters Baker said, Reliable, corroborating evidence now proves that Mr. Strickland is factually innocent of the charges for which he was convicted of in 1979. In the interest of justice, Mr. Strickland's conviction should be set aside, prompt release, and he deserves public clemency. The CIU reports that the Douglas had likely mistaken Strickland for PH, a much stronger suspect. In his interview, Strickland had told the police that PH was with Bell and Adkins the afternoon of the murders, and Bell had said the same thing during his allocution. In addition, PH was arrested for armed robbery a month after Strickland's arrest. Finally, he and Strickland looked very similar, and they were both short with light skin and matching hairstyles. I wouldn't say it's a doppelganger, but it's strikingly similar, Baker told, Baker told the Kansas City Star. I remember having moments like it, like that's where I thought, wow, we just kept becoming more and more sure. The report said that after Bell entered his plea in allocution naming his accomplices in 1979, Douglas was convinced that she had made a mistake and tried to tell prosecutors. Three other witnesses also signed affidavits saying that Douglas had recanted to them years before she sent the emails to the Midwest Innocence Project in 2009. Douglas had testified that Strickland was the man with a shotgun and the Kansas City Police Department had retained the lift taken from the weapon in 1978. Improvements in technology made it possible to compare the prints that the analyst testified was unusable and Strickland was eliminated as the source of that fingerprints. The report noted that Strickland and Bell were neighbors and that it said that Strickland likely offered Douglas money to keep quiet to impress Bell. It is also cloaked closely reviewed Strickland's interview with the police and found his statements inflammatory, but not inculpatory. They are offensive, but making the statements would not make Strickland guilty of being there that night, the report said. Strickland had paid a steep price for associating with Bell, Adkins, and T.A., for mouthing off to the police and for trying to be cool and helping his older number, Bell. Following the release of the report, Strickland's attorneys filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus, petition with the Missouri Supreme Court for his immediate release. While the petition tracked many of the findings in the report, it also asserted that the fingerprint analyst had testified falsely that the print lifted from the shotgun could not be used for identification purposes. It wasn't an advancement in technology that allowed the more recent comparison that excluded Strickland. The evidence was there all along. Strickland's attorney, the petition said, was ineffective for failing to object when the police officer fingerprinted evidence for failing to examine the fingerprint evidence independently and for failing to object when the police officer for the jottings in his notebook without producing the book itself. The court declined to hear the case. So by this time, Strickland's case had garnered national attention with politicians of both parties calling for Governor Mike Parson to issue 
a pardon. He declined, saying he was not convinced of Strickland's innocence. I am not convinced that I am willing to let other people risk if you're if you're not right, he said. But if you're interested in someone he'd in, pardon. In July 2020, Mike proactively pledged to pardon Mark and Patricia McCloskey. So, if they sound very familiar, they are the St. Louis couple. The picture was splashed all over news media. They were the ones who were pointing guns at unarmed George Floyd protesters who were just walking past their home on a private street. And so Mike did, in August 2021, parting at Mark Mike and Patricia, after they pled guilty to misdemeanor fourth degree assault and misdemeanor harassment, Strickland and all white jury had convicted had been convicted, but had maintained his innocence. And the case's prosecutor even said she believes him to be innocent. So when the when they began to review its review of sorry that's my dog if you can hear him of strickland's conviction prosecutors in missouri can petition the court for new trials for defendants after their conviction had become final on may sorry march 2nd 2021 the missouri supreme court affirmed that the rule in another closely watched case involving a defendant from st louis named mar johnson which i will cover the justices wrote, this case is not whether about Johnson is innocent or whether Rubbity exists for someone innocent and did not receive a constitutionally fair trial. This case presents the only issue of whether there is any authority to appeal the dismissal of a motion for a new trial filed decades after criminal conviction becomes final. No such authority exists. So finally, this Following the Supreme Court's decision, the Missouri General Assembly approved legislation allowing prosecutors to petition a circuit judge to set aside unwrongful conviction. So on July 14, 2021, Mike Parsons, the governor, signed the bill into law taking effect on October, sorry, August 28, 2021. Baker filed a motion to set aside the verdicts in Strickland's case that day. So, two days later, Attorney General Eric Smith wrote that his office plan exposed Baker's motion. Smith said that much of the evidence mentioned in Baker's motion was hearsay, neither reliable nor admissible. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so, a lot of this is just they may vacate his conviction. So, finally... On November 23, 2021, Judge Wealth finally vacated Kevin Strickland's conviction. His ruling noted that the new Missouri law allowed him to consider both information and evidence, which would encompass the affidavits about David Douglas's recantations, which he called numerous and consistent. There was no physical evidence convicting, connecting him to the killings, 
He was convicted solely on Douglas's testimony, which she had recanted more than once. He was now 62, so when he got out, he was 62, primarily confined to a real wheelchair, and he was released from prison that day. So, here's the other thing. Um, Missouri, they unfortunately said that he couldn't, the only way he would get paid for being locked up for 43 years, mind you, was um, if it was proven through DNA. Um, so yeah. Strickland didn't qualify, unfortunately, because it's not like... Anyways. Mr. Sh so... <clears throat> so after he was released in prison for after 43 years, if you can imagine it, he, an online fundraiser for Strickland was set up by Teresa... Teresa... Trisha... Rojo Bushnell, the executive director of the Midwest Innocence Project and one of Strickland's attorneys. She quickly raised more than $1.6 million in six days. So he told the New York Times that, so Kevin Strickland told the New York Times that while generosity was appreciated, it didn't get the essence of who was responsible for what happened to him. The courts failed me and that's who should be trying to make my life a little more comfortable, he said. Three weeks after he was released from prison, he was driven around a changed Kansas, his daughter showing him where she grew up decades earlier. She was an infant when 1978, with Strickland, who was 18, was arrested in a triple murder that would lead to Missouri's longest known wrongful conviction. Um. So his daughter, his kids... His daughter and his grandchildren, I believe in this, aren't named, so I'm going to pretty much do the exact same thing and just not name anyone, because I feel like that's the best thing. Now living on the East Coast, his daughter, who is 43, recently visited Kansas City to spend time with her exonerated father, a week he described as exciting and full of love, but also made him nervous. He searches for answers for a great answer when asked about his best experiences in the free world. But it's the everyday things, sleeping on a bed with a cushion that is not attached to a wall, being able to adjust his water temperature during showers, and like nearly everything else that's regulated behind bars, now he can scald or freed himself when he wants. So that to his daughter, the days could be frantic. She tried to help her father, who has never owned a car, rented an apartment, or until recently used a cell phone, start a life as an adult outside prison walls. He needed paperwork, but there were challenges. One agency could not find his birth certificate, which Strickland felt the government didn't even have any existing. So Strickland's first night in his room, down a staircase attached to his brother's 
messy garage was scary. He was to be living in a concrete cell where he knew other people were locked out. Wooden homes with their flimsy doors are not secure to him. On the floor next to his bed are orange water-resistant sandals, one of four pairs of shoes he brought home from his time as a fender, 36922, in the Missouri Department of Corrections. Loved ones have told him to throw them away to get rid of that bad karma, but prison can teach a person not to be not to part with anything of value. A radio he's owned since 2004, which plays his favorite hip-hop cassette tape, sits on his bedstand. Among his possessions is a fan he previously held close to a sweaty face when, without air conditioning, temperatures sweltered during several months behind bars. Strickland has not been able to spend much time with his son as Strickland had when he was 14. Now 48, he lives in Florida with five children, and he was four years old when Strickland last saw him. Over the phone, the, over the phone their relationship sounds wonderful, Strickland said, but he does not know if his son resents not being there for him. Since coming home, Strickland has tried to take it as much as possible. He struggles to sleep. He goes to bed at 10.15 p.m., finds himself awake at 1.45 a.m., before attempting to force himself to get another few hours. He knows how much he has missed, and Strickland knows he can't catch up, but does not want to miss any more. Also, his mind races. After speaking to the star, Strickland's daughter said in an email that she wanted employees of a legal system to remember that their work has real-world consequences. Police and prosecutors won professionally in her case, but they ruined an innocent man's life, lives of his families, and altered any legacy intended to build with, with and for his descendants. Forty-three years later, the broken family man has to try to fix what public servants tore apart, she wrote. This case will ultimately fade away from being newsworthy, but the disconnect created in this family will impact generations to come. He is also still being misidentified. Since his release, a dozen people have claimed they remember him from school, but he tells them he never went there. When they name the institution, it's a sore spot for him because false identification sends him to prison. So, um, I hope you guys find this episode interesting because this is, like I said, this is the longest, um, serving case of exon. Well, he served the longest time in Missouri prison, wrongful conviction, 43 years. And, um, that's all, folks. Bye bye.